Hello, friends and enemies. It's episode 76 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan, joined by Ed and producer Jeremy, as always. And our mission here on TMK to do a number of things, right? Like we, we are documenting uh, a number of things in, in the tech industry um, and its intersections with, with capital, with the, the so-called industry of innovation, right? These conceptions of innovation, right? We, we've been spending a lot of time looking at labor, you know, and that's really important. But something that we need to focus on even more that we haven't really looked into a whole lot is just like, like the tech itself and the, and the kind of the bullshit promises uh, that prop up a lot of technology, right? It's not just the the kind of bullshit of like Amazon, right? Like doing things that are are just boldly, baldly, blatantly exploitative, extractive, just to get a little bit more of that surplus value and calling it innovation, right? There is a whole fucking global industry of selling these imaginaries, these visions, these promises of growth and development and progress as well. That is a huge part of the tech sector. And we we haven't focused a lot on that in a while, but now it's time to go back. We're, we're going to get back on our bullshit by calling out the tech industry on their bullshit. And in the way of doing so, right, like, I spent a lot of time in, in, you know, in my career so far as an academic looking at smart cities and looking at the kind of visions and politics of smart cities, these bullshit socio-technical imaginaries, as I've called it in my work. Uh, you know, we're we're going to get back on some of that right now. And, and the, the occasion for it is an amazing, amazing essay that just came out in this publication called Rest of World. The, the name of this article is The Failed Promise of Kenya's Smart City by this journalist named Carrie Baraka. And I love this piece, man. Uh, I, I, I love this piece because reading through it, it seems so familiar to me in many ways, right? Looking at the kind of global industry around smart urbanism, but also so uh, new and interesting and original in a lot of ways because it focuses so in depth on, on one hand, the, the failures of, of the, of the smart city promises across many different countries in Africa, especially in Eastern Africa. Uh, but we, we can see these kind of things happening in like South Africa as well, um, countries in North Africa. But particularly as well, what I really enjoyed about it is the way in which uh, it highlights how the fingerprints of the McKinsey Global Institute are all over this fucking shit as well, right? We're going to, in this episode, talk about the failures of technology, of these technological visions in a way that we haven't in a while talked about it. We, you know, not the failures in the sense of how they are leading to these uh, really uh, harmful uh, consequences for society, for people, for workers, but failures in this way as well that it's fucking science fiction. It's bullshit. It doesn't live up to any of the dreams uh, any of the promises or aspirations that it purports to be delivering to society. I think even one simple way to, you know, think about this is, you know, the description, the opening description um, of like the drive to Kansas City, I think does a really good job of illuminating just like what is like immediately something should appear to be wrong to somebody who's reading, right? I'll read, I'll read the, I, the first mm. two paragraphs because I think they, you know, sum yeah. it all up. Driving down to Kansas City from Nairobi, 
One is struck by the emptiness. Past the airport, the city dissolves into the expansive savanna of Machacos County and a phalanx of small towns along the highway to the coast. There is Malonglongo, uh, named after the lines of trucks and long-distance trailers coming from Mombasa and proceeding as far inland as Rwanda. And now the wind, uh, river, a bastion of cement factories. And to the left of the highway, there are nude housing developments with swanky English names. Great Wall Gardens, Green Park, Paradise Park. On either side of the road, a cacophony of ranches, mile after mile. Most of these are white-owned or formerly white-owned, the hinterland of an enduring colonial presence. Cows graze forlornly in the distance. I miss to turn to Kanza, as there is nothing to suggest a city here. Only once I've driven past it do I recognize the complex where the Kanza Technopolis Development Authority, Kota, is located. It is the only building for kilometers around taller than one story. Now, something to think about and help also contextualize is Kanza is 64, mile, 64 kilometers, so about 37 miles past uh, south of uh, Nairobi, right? Nairobi in of itself is the tech hub of Kenya and to a great extent uh, East Africa because specifically telecommunications and then the private investors that are pouring in capital there, right? But that the Kota has been under development for well over 13 years since it was announced in 2008, where it was announced as what was going to be the best planned city in Africa. And it is also after you know something north of $14 billion has been spent, allocated, or appropriated for this project, right? But been delayed by just flat out incompetence in the planning, by legal challenges, uh, by political delays, by economic delays, by corporate um, you know, bullshit and malfeasance. I mean, this is a project that from the very beginning has failed. And its failures, I think, are connected to the failures that we've seen in other smart cities across Africa, what we've seen in the smart cities uh, you know, across the world. But, at the, but this story focuses in on the Kenyan example and the examples of others in Africa because they all have um, a common thread that McKinsey is exploiting, right? Here specifically, there's you know, a, uh, a continent-wide trend that's going on, right, as the essay writes, where it talks about how you know, over the past decade, there's been about you know, more than a half a dozen African countries that have tried to say, we are going to skyrocket to the top of the global tech elite, in echelons and attract capital and foreign de- uh, direct investment by building smart cities, right? In Nigeria, they tried to do Echo Atlantic City. In Ghana, they did Hope City. In uh, Ethiopia, they did one that was going to be the real Wakanda, right? In Rwanda, they did Kigali Innovation City. And in Senegal, they are doing Akon City, right? Now, named after the rapper to, Akon. A- <laughs> right, named after the rapper Akon. And I think maybe the, the best analog to think about is Echo Atlantic City. I mean, Echo Atlantic City is in Nigeria, right? And this is a city that is about 10 square kilometers of land on Vic- off the coast of Victoria Island, right? So they reclaimed this land from the Atlantic Ocean, right? And they said, okay, it's not going to have any of the poverty or the sprawl of Lagos. It's going to be a mega city immediately, and it's going to be better than Dubai and Singapore, right? And so what is important to recognize with Echo City is that Echo Atlantic is off the coast of Victoria Island, right? The last smart city or new capital or new Lagos was Victoria Island, right? And before that is Ukoi, and before that it was Banana Island, right? Each one of them all had similar claims. Echo Atlantic 
We're not sure how much it costs, but it's supposed to be somewhere north of $6 billion. They keep saying it's going to be finished. And it took years and years and years and years and years of delays to get back to the to the place, right? And even if it were to be finished and built up, there's the question how it's actually going to be anything than what some critics warned as like a climate apartheid city, a bubble, right? Because in Victoria Island, in Nikoi, in Banana Island, you see that you have vacancy rates that are as high as 30%, right? According to, there's um, a really good report on... Uh, on Echo Atlantic in um, the Republic, which is a Nigerian publication uh, called Zombiescapes, Africa's Megacity Addiction. And it kind of goes through um, this sort of rationale and reasoning behind these megacities that they've been popping up, right? They're, that people are trying to do new forms of urban governance, authoritarian forms of urban governance, and think that if you just throw money and capital and technology at it, then it will work. And that it will also displace the communities that they think make areas look ugly or that they associate with crime or that they associate with lesser you know, uh, social status or that they don't in one way or another want in their beautified area, right? And this is, and that article I think also touches on other examples which are connected to the McKinsey and the smart city thing, but not necessarily smart cities, right? Where in Egypt, for example, they tried to do a new thing called New Cairo. And that was supposed to cost $40 billion, right? Senegal had another thing called Diamandio, a lake city, right? And that was supposed to be a $2 billion city by 2035. That was going to get rid of the congestion of Dakar, right? There's another city in Nairobi that was called Tatu City that was supposed to be built. And in South Africa, they were going to try to build a new Manhattan, in Johannesburg, right? All so there's there's a thread here where these cities keep trying to say sometimes they use technology as the preemptive, right? Sometimes they use other causes as this article will lay out as the impetus for saying let's build a new city from scratch, right? Let's build something that is ours from scratch and let's do it by cutting back social services, let's do it by attracting private capital, let's do it by privatizing essentially the city. Carrie Baraka, the author of The Reporter, behind this brilliant essay, called it, right, this continent-wide trend. And you've just nailed it, right, in, in this, like, long rundown of all these, like, you know, greenfield cities, right, built from scratch. It's going to be the, you know, the new, the new hearts, the new meccas, the new capitals of finance and technology. I mean, we'll get a lot close. We'll get a lot deeper into this as we go through the episode. But I think there's a, a really interesting, like, political economy going on here as well in the sense that on one hand right there's like a there's a there's a real serious supply and de- uh, a demand thing going on here a push pull right and and like you know i'm thinking about the the name of my i titled my phd uh dissertation which was about smart cities and smart urbanism uh selling smartness and because it it, it really is about not just the the technologies itself, right? Like we have spent a lot of time on TMK talking about like 
why these things, why these like uh, data-driven, networked, you know, ubiquitous sensors, it's all automated, right? Like these like taking seriously these visions of, of, a, of, a, of a super smart city and then deconstructing them and being like, here's why this is not desirable. Here's why this is like, this would be really awful if it were actualized or materialized in any serious way. While I think that shit is really valuable um, to, to look at the, like, the clear and, and present implications of if this technology were to go into effect, here's what the obvious consequences of it would be. We got to take a step back even um, and realize that a lot of this shit does not exist and will never exist in any kind of way that at least mirrors uh, or reflects what the the marketing brochures um, look like, right? I think it. Uh, uh, I think a, a core lesson that we'll learn here um, in this episode, as we kind of go through this ep- essay, as we go through a number of these other cases of the of of this just fucking like you know the, this this global uh, long rap sheet of failed smart cities, um, quote unquote failed. You know, we'll get into what that act- what that means. We really have to look at the fact that a lot of this shit is uh, built on uh, marketing, right? And they become victims of their own marketing, victims of their own visions, because they can never truly live up to, um, you know, what this this uh, a real Wakanda would look like, right? They like you can't you can't live up to that because the uh, the amount of investment needed on top of all the legal, uh, the property, the technology, like all of these things in order to make that real. There's so many things standing in the way, but I think at the heart of it, what it what it what it what it shows is on one hand for the companies and the consultancies, you know, the IBMs and the Cisco's of the world, the McKinsey's and the uh, Accenture's of the world, uh, you know, they're selling this shit. I think knowing it's not going to happen because all they're doing is that, you know, they're used car men uh, selling uh, selling lemons to customers, right? It, they they know it's a lemon. They know it's going to fucking crap out when you get around the block after you drive it off the lot. Not their problem. They sold it to you. They got your money, right? Whereas I think that's what's motivating them. And in the process, what they're doing is they're, they're in a lot of ways, I think, fleecing uh, countries and governments um, and and the the people of those countries who you know you are looking for ways to essentially leapfrog um, any kind of uh, hard processes of development, right? Hard processes of providing services, of attracting capital, of stoking economic growth, and these companies like McKinsey are selling them a way uh, a, a kind of like a, a beanstalk right? Or they're selling them beans. And they're like, you plant these beans, you plant these smart beans, and then the place, a beanstalk will grow. And then you can just climb that beanstalk. And you will also then be at the at the, the top of the, the t- technological and financial global elite. Um, it's, it's like a shortcut, right? They're trying to sell them a shortcut. But in reality, what they're doing is just getting millions and millions of dollars of consulting fees to sell them bullshit, and then just bouncing out and doing a copy paste job been selling the same thing to someone else. You know, as you're talking also about and building on some of the earlier points about the political economy at work here, another aspect is that Kenya in of itself, as um, 
you know, one of the journalists that, uh, you know, uh, Kerry Baraka points to points out, you know, Kenya's economic planning, Kenya's political governance has been built on this compromise that happened after decolonization, after independence from Britain, where you had two pretty large, contentious, a bit of rivalry, you know, rivalry ideological groups, right? You had the nationalists that would go on to, I mean, I mean, to an extent they were all were nationalists, but you had nationalist capitalists, right? Or you had capitalists that would, you know, say that the priority needed to be uh, development of the economy because you couldn't, de- you, you couldn't provide for people if there was no economic base and no industrial base. And then you had socialists who were saying that the way to do, to move forward was to pursue policies that would ensure, you know, land was not concentrated in certain ethnic groups, right? Or that, uh, land was more, demo- you know, easily accessible, or that there would be, you know, economic programs or social uh, programs that would support people in uh, the country. And uh, a lot of the development and the waves of the presidents have come from, you know, K- Kenyatta, you know, from you know, Jomo Kenyatta, the founder of the country, uh, to his um, to his uh, son Uru um, Kenyatta. Um, they all come out of, a, you know, a debate, a disagreement, an attempt to reconcile both sides of that debate, right? And in Kenya, it partic- in particular, it manifests as a sort of question of the land, right? Who is holding the land? Who is able to develop the land? Who is able to uh, run and use the land to leverage into other markets? And and one of the ways in which this manifests is with these vision mm-hmm. projects, right? McKinsey's vision projects, right? Because the question ends up becoming, okay, then how can Kenya become a middle-income country, right? How can it achieve double-digit growth, you know, 10% growth each year? How can it transform its social services? How can it transform the social, uh, you know, civil services uh, or civil society? How can it transform the uh, the democracy? How can it do constitutional reform? How can it do referendums? How can it in, empower local governance and still have some sort of central governing authority, I think, are these like some of the larger aims of this, right? You know, the vision projects emerge both as a way to to do that, but like within a lens of pro-growth, liberalization, as in like, you know, uh, you know, liberalizing capital flow so that they can, you know, slush around at the bottom of the barrel more easily, um, but also attracting capital from the United States and China, right? So that they can you know, be investment in infrastructure or in roads or in railways or in telecommunications. And the telecommunications projects are really key here because it's the telecommunication shifts that have facilitated some of the more breakneck paces of economic growth, right? Because they were able to, they broke a monopoly that had been, um, you know, low-key run by the family, by Kenyatta's family. They broke a monopoly that telecom uh, that the major telecom company had in Kenya that then, you know, as the article says, allowed private firms to come in. But the private firms, it's not that the private firms came in and rapidly innovated, it's that the monopoly ended up being a corrupt, you know, a corrupt one, a state-backed monopoly that was pretty corrupt, charged high prices for low service quality. And so when the private firms came in, they, you know, were able to remove a lot of the glut, but then they started pitching and hucking uh, bullshit, mm-hmm. right? A lot of bullshit about what the technology could do. A lot of bullshit about what the technology should be able to do. A lot of arguments about what the what the role of telecommunication should be, right? It should be that everyone pays into this telecom system and has to use it and has to pay or has to use a specific system to get onto it and talk to neighbors or talk to family overseas or talk to family across the country, right? So. This, this bringing in the privatization of the telecom 
might have lowered prices, but it helped spread this ideology of how people should be able to use this good, right? Um, which abstent, you know, should be a public good, if but just not in the hands of corrupt monopoly. And then I think that sort of logic bleeds into everything else. Well, you know, if we can privatize and optimize your telecom, then it stands to reason that we can do that for the rest of the city. In fact, what if we uh, helped craft a city where that was done from the first place and where you didn't have the bloat, you didn't have the inequality, you didn't have the ethnic uh, strife you didn't have, or conflict, you didn't have the uneven distribution of land. And in fact, from the beginning, it was just managed with wizened hands of consultants and um, and capitalists. Yeah, uh, a lot of the early uh, like critical attention on smart cities, you know, back you know, o- over 10 years ago now, was really focusing on a lot of these uh, these these visions of of these kind of like built from scratch smart cities, right? So like you know, two big ones that stand out um, in my mind as uh, kind of exemplars of this is on one hand, um, New Songdo City in South Korea, which was you know like the city you were talking about that you know reclaimed land um literally building it from scratch on land that on on land that did not exist that land was that was reclaimed from the ocean or from the the waters uh to build this new city that's what new songdo city was meant to be uh they like uh you know south korea reclaimed a bunch of land from the waters um in order to build this like you know smart from scratch city on top of it you know, surprise, surprise, it, it, that city exists in some way, but it's a fucking ghost city. No one actually lives there wow. uh, because because the city has no soul. It has no character. Right. It's uh, it's like Ooh, it's like wow. building a, a, a haunted mansion, um, but not because not haunted because of its history, but haunted because of all the capital and innovation that was just poured into it. Right. Um, just mm-hmm. anti-human in a lot of ways, but it was also a huge money sink and it was also plagued by all these delays and detours and dead ends and shit like that there's a lot of research on the development of new songdo city and, and i mean also just like a shout out to some of the things we talked about with um lale khalili uh songdo city was also part of a special economic zone that would make it like mm. you know that was meant to attract mm-hmm. capital that was meant to make it you know like you you won't pay taxes um there'll be like you know like ultra liberal uh market reforms and policies in place which they try to do in uh, Kansas city they try to do in Kansas city as well and in all these and some of these other uh african exactly exactly so i, I want to bring up the second paragon like early paragon of this like smart from scratch kind of city that ended up going nowhere is also a uh, mazdar city in the uh, united arab emirates um another instance of uh pouring a bunch of money into trying to build a smart city from scratch in the middle of the desert and it's uh nothing right like not like like and again right. things were built things exist but people do not live there and the place looks you know yeah. it's desolate it's these ghost towns and so yeah let, let you know going back to to the african continent we can see these same exact things being replayed right like this is another market that these uh, same companies, these same consultancies like McKinsey are coming in and even, and, and, you know, they're selling 
the same kind of uh their like their strategy documents have the same fucking names right like um if we you know i, I think the 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 uh kanza city in kenya which is the real like the the real focus of this essay in rest of world by carrie baraka um is a is a really fantastically reported and told case study of how this is happening so Yo, Kansas City was also one of these early developments. It didn't get a lot of attention. I, I mean, I, I don't think it really got much uh, international attention at all, not like New Songdo or Mazdar City did. Um, but it was announced at the same exact time uh, as Baraka uh, shows, you know, I'll give a little bit of history of, of Kanza um, and, and its plans for development. So Kanza City was, a, was, was announced in 2008 which is super fucking early on the smart city uh on you know global scene um if if we think that IBM announced its uh its its big smarter planet and smart city kind of flagship initiatives in 2008 Cisco announced its own smart city uh initiatives in 2009 Right, so Kansas City was yeah. like really ahead of the game um, in terms of, of of what it was like trying to do and how it was going to use technology to do it. Shout out to McKinsey, baby. Shout out to McKinsey, <laughs> the fucking behemoth of neoliberal consulting. They, you know, they they know how to track those trends. It's the crystal ball. You remember the crystal ball that Trump and the king of Saudi Arabia were touching <laughs> in uh, in the desert. That's when you look into that crystal ball, you just get vision twenty XX plans. <laughs> you know? That's where they pull them from. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Because Kansas City was announced as part of Kenya's Vision Twenty Thirty plan, right? Which is this, mm-hmm. as Baraka lays out, is this government-led development blueprint. Um, as he says, quote, with the stated aim of turning Kenya into, um, as you put it earlier, a middle income country, providing a high quality life to all its citizens by the year 2030. Now, this plan, right, like Kanza was the kind of like flagship of it, right? This was supposed to be the, the new capital of, of innovation and capital um, in Kenya. Capital, capital. The proposal also included, as Baraka uh, lays out, uh, the construction of a superhighway from Nairobi to the nearby, nearby industrial town of Tika, uh, a new port and oil refinery in the centuries-old Swahili island town of Lamu, and a transport corridor which would evolve laying a network of roads through northern Kenya and into South Sudan and Ethiopia, as well as three international airports would be built, as well as a new railway mm-hmm. to replace the century-old British-built line. Um, and then there was Kanza, right, which according to uh, initial plans, the city would be completed in four five-year phases. You've heard of a five-year plan? Mm. What, about, what about four <laughs> five-year plans, baby? <laughs> and also there's when you're listening to this plan a little siren should be going off in your head because think of the industries that are going to be highlighted in this sort of development program you need to build out massive railways and transportation infrastructure right you need to build out the cities sufficiently to attract more tourism you're also presumably going to need to expand uh, telecommunications and other sort of like high tech electronics to sustain, uh, you know, 
high, you know, high amounts of what data and internet and broadband access and fast speeds of it too, as well as uh, just in general, like phone usage, right? And you're also probably going to need to invest in uh, agriculture sector, like, you know, agri business, because you're going to in need to increase, massively increase food yields. And then you're probably also going to, you know, need to figure out some way to provide for farmers or to compensate them for dispossession. All right. So if we, you know, do all this, what, like all of that requires you to um, have a mass amount of underpaid labor. You need to have, when you, if you're doing the tourism industry, right, you need to have like uh, on-demand services that can attract people that come in there, right? Okay, so you just got to grow out the gig economy. If you're going to be building out the railways, you're probably going to be using the migrant workers. Same for the hospitality industry. I mean, you, not that you need to do these things, but that is how these things end up being done when you have private-public partnerships that are trying to save the dollar that is spent, but then pocket the rest of the costs and expenses and the government subsidies, right? And so you end up needing... And it's not ever really talked about in these vision plans. You need a mass amount of human suffering and misery and exploitation to make them go through in the name of making the society better in like 20 years. But one, the society never happens, as we've been seeing with all of these cities. And two, you still do the exploitation, mm -hmm. right? So even in the cities where it works... Right, like in Dubai or in, you know in parts of the United Arab the United Arab Emirates, you know in Qatar, you can have these high tech cities from the future in Singapore. And what do you also have? An unimaginable degree of exploitation of the migrant workers. And then in the cities where fail that fail, you still have the unimaginable degree of exploitation of the migrant workers. Right? It's and it's it's uh, it's a it's shit. It's just a shit sandwich. No matter how you cut it. It almost seems like Doha, Qatar took that same formula and then ended mm -hmm. up getting the World Cup out of it. Mm -hmm. And so it kind of, yeah. you know, they kind of use it as a selling point. It's almost like, a, do you guys remember the Simpsons episode, like the monorail sales guy? You know, my, that was my introduction to the Simpsons. Yeah. He's like, <laughs> you know, he's like, I've sold monorails to Brockway, Ogdenville, and North Haverbrook, and by gum, it put them on the map. Well, sir, there's nothing on earth like a genuine, bona fide, electrified six-car monorail. What I say? Monorail. What's it called? Monorail. That's right. That's right. Like, uh, this is the guy that, you know, built Doha up into the big city that it is, and now they have the World Cup, and you could do the same thing in Kenya, you can do the same thing wherever. I mean, honestly, it's like that for the Olympics. Mm -hmm. I mean, I it's only been recently for me, and I think it also is like a testament to like how I don't know what the how the coverage is going for it. It's only been recently that I've like realized right how bad or learned or actually tried to sit down and, and read about how people in the area don't fucking want it. But like, is that it's still happening? It's happening less than a hundred days. They're not ready for it. They're not properly vaccinated, right? The volunteers mm -hmm. are quitting in mass, and but that's how it is for all the Olympics too. And, and I think that like the pandemic gives a chance to see how many of these mega projects are really just attempts to cultivate capital flows, right? Because if you're not, if, the, if this is for the good of the people and they don't want it and they're not getting vaccinated, then why is it happening? Well, it's happening because it's a massive money-making opportunity, right? Same with the World Cup, right? If some city would decide that they don't want to actually have the World Cup, well, too fucking bad. Nobody cares, right? It's all about the investors and it's about um, the businesses and the partners that are involved in this effort, right? And the same goes for these mega cities. Do the Kenyans that live in Nairobi actually want to travel 37 miles 
uh, down to Konza when it's not even finished built, when it's not even built, or when there's not even infrastructure to go there, when they can't even get internet access, and when they also, when none of the problems that exist in Nairobi are being handled, and there's no guarantee that they won't pop up again in this mega bubble. No, why? No. But does anyone care? No, because the consultants need their pay. And the private partners that are going to be attracted, if they're attracted, right, are going to need their pay or their cut. They don't really care. They don't really care except to make the money. It's like building something, like uh, building up a city in like Sim City, and then quitting sixty percent through it, and going and just building something else up, and then telling the inhabitants of that city, "Well, too fucking bad. Go move to the new city we're building." Okay, though I do that when I get frustrated with a city. You know, if I'm building up a city and there's like too much traffic, I'm like, "Fuck it," you know, just leave. <laughs> <laughs> or if I'm uh, playing Civ and like I just make a catastrophic mistake, um, I say, "Fuck it," and you know, the game was being unfair. I mean, it was really me. But I, but you're right. Like that is what it is. I mean, like they are half-heartedly looking into the consequences, the predictable consequences of this massive project. And then saying, fuck it, who cares? We'll do it anyway. You know, we'll do a lot. Yeah. Fuck it. City engineers basically rage quitting. <laughs> yeah, I mean, th- 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 this is endemic to all of these uh, these mega development projects. And, and you know, you guys are totally mm-hmm. right to bring in like the World Cup and the Olympics into this. Because all this shit is, is the whole purpose here is that like, it's this field of dreams model, right? Like if you build it, they will come. Um, not asking right. the fact of like, one, can you build it? Um, and two, like mm-hmm. if you did build it, what would be the, who's building it? What's the, what's the human cost also, of building it? Right. Like also should you build yeah, it? No, you know? no, no. <laughs> oh, uh, we can't ask those questions. <laughs> yeah, right. We're, trying, we're trying to build shit and you're over here asking, should we build this shit? Like, come on, man. You gotta be a doer and a maker. <laughs> right. I can't be a dreamer and an asker. <laughs> That's right. right. Yeah, no, no askers allowed. Um, but exactly, like, even when this shit does get built, right, like these mega development projects, which, you know, we see every fucking four, eight years with the World Cup, with the Olympics, right? Also, the fact that, yeah, like in, uh, in, in Doha, right, with the World Cup, right, like, I mean, the, the foundations there are literally filled with the bodies of slave labor um, and like slave labor, migrant labor imported to build that shit. They die on the job. They just get dumped into the foundations of the stadium. Like literally that is what's happening, right? Like, like the, you know, we talked about how these cities are haunted. Maybe they're haunted because they're built on top of the burial grounds of fucking, uh, you know, migrant slave labor. Yeah. But like, Built on bare grounds of like every single person except the class of people who own it. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and you know, Baraka uh, points out you know in the essay he says, "quote Few attempts were made to sell Kanza to ordinary Kenyans, and at the end of the day, it needed their support. While the government promised that the project would ultimately generate." 200,000 jobs, experts quickly poked holes in the claim. Kenyan economist Kwame Owino argued that the projected cost of creating a single job would be roughly $32,000. That's $32,000 per job created, more than 20 times higher than the country's average annual income. Moreover, the Kenyan government didn't bother to explain how Kanza would avoid the pitfall common to similar projects across the goal a globe that smart jobs often end up being given to handsomely paid expatriates 
it's almost like the the real mega development project we need here is communism, right? Like why? Like like <laughs> you're spending thirty two thousand dollars for each supposed job created, uh, as which as you know, Baraka points out is twenty times higher than the average annual income. Why don't you just give that money? to those 200,000 people, right? Why don't you distribute that money no. and then oh, watch the economy grow on its own, you know? Watch the free market at work. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Because they don't believe in the free market, sadly. But we no, do. I, I think that's we a do. really good, uh, <laughs> that's a really fucking good point here, Ed, is that, uh, you know, we've talked about before, this is like a running trend on, on Trash Future as well, a running theme there. And, and, and in like a lot of the episodes we've been on with Trash Future, that's like, you know, capitalism is just the Soviet Union done really shit, <laughs> right? Yeah, it's Gospel on 2.0. I really do. I think I think Alphaville's right on that, you know. Um, and Financial Times Alphaville has uh, been hitting that fucking gavel, saying that for like, what, 10 years mm-hmm. at this point? incredibly shitty central planning. I think who is it? It was uh, Eric Levitz was like, yeah, we have venture, we have central planners. They're called venture capitalists and they are, mm-hmm. right? They're called McKinsey global Institute, right? That's the transnational right. central planner for, uh, mm-hmm. Africa, for, uh, Southeast Asia, for the middle East, right? Like for India. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Eurasia is our economic zone. That's where we do the experiments. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, like they do treat these countries like laboratories, like laboratories of experimentation. It's, I mean, we have to understand this. Like these aren't just like, like little, like uh, flippant comparisons that we're making here. I think that we actually do have to draw these analogies out further in the sense of like, this is what the shock doctrine looks like, right? This is what the, uh, uh, the fucking like economic shocks in the, so in the, in the post-Soviet bloc after the fall of, uh, of the Soviet union that came in and just like immediately liberalized all these countries and caused the single greatest drop in life expectancy, um, and, and, uh, and, and general welfare, um, like in modern history, right? Like immediately, um, because of the shock mm-hmm. doctrine shit, this is what's happening, uh, uh, here as well is that this is, it's not only essential planning, but it's taking these countries in East Africa that are looking for ways to develop, that are looking for ways to grow, um, and provide a higher quality of life to their citizens and selling them a fucking bill of goods and treating them like a like an experimental laboratory for uh, neoliberal innovation and excellence. Decades of dictatorships, World Bank, IMF loans and shock therapy have crushed our resistance and taken its toll. Broken and pained, we have learned the hard way that disaster capitalism was invented only to protect its own. All hail the shoeless, clueless, for the one-eyed has been crowned king. His entourage of militants, neoliberals and fanatics, perfectly positioned on the side wings. Court jesters now openly mock our struggle and claim to be the voice of our people. Our demand for restitution has been hijacked with brute force and muscle. We know divide and rule has always been the order of the day. Nigerians remember, no victor, no vanquished. That's how you keep the uprising at bay. It is. I think it's very tempting to only look at it at a superficial level and, and be like, okay, McKinsey 
is you know uh, a crock of bullshit. Uh, hawk, they're, just, they're just evil motherfuckers who are hawking crocks of bullshit across the world, right? And then they and they are just doing what they've been trained to do under capitalism, right? And that the reason all these things look alike is just because capitalism is global, and so we all have to deal with that. And I think, but the analogy should show that it is very specific types of development projects which yield these outcomes and that those development projects end up being the only ones that are pursued within this socioeconomic system, right? You don't actually have to build like a tech campus. You don't have to build a Google tech campus like 37 miles away from your capital city. You don't have to actually do that. You can build another city. You don't even have to build another city. You can just work on your city, right? There, These are decisions that are made and they're decisions that are political and ideological decisions that are then wrapped around in the, in the in economic rhetoric right or in rhetoric of studies and analysis and, and visions and bullshit right but at the end of the day there's still political and ideological decisions that structure or intend to structure everyone lives their lives right i think that like most development projects should be understood as just like you know bulldozers or attempts to bulldoze through like some arrangement of institutions and some arrangement of patterns and reaction to those institutions that are getting in the way of capital flows, right? A lot of times that's what the development projects end up being. And so it's not so much that it's just like McKinsey is really, I mean, it is that McKinsey is, you know, at the forefront of this development regime pushing it, right? But that also because, uh, because development projects are just, you know, in that form, right? That's why everything, that's why it's important to look at the smart cities and United States, look at the uh, smart cities in, you know, Latin America, look at the smart cities in Asia. And then as we were doing here, buckle down in like Africa one, because I think African smart cities are undercovered. Mm. The rest of the world has been really good with this reporting here. And it's like really valuable. And also because African ones do kind of have a history that might be a little little ruminating, Mm -hmm. right? And that as the piece also points out, um, after the end of the colonial period, um, a lot of these countries tried to set up their own capital cities. To start from scratch because they didn't want to work. They didn't want to operate from the administrative zone or the administrative centers of the previous empire, right? Mm-hmm. Makes sense. And so they would turn small towns or they into new capitals or they would build up new capitals entirely, right? To do that is a lot of work, especially when you just broke out of the shackles of an empire. And then that would usually be fertile ground for the re-establishing, right? The neocolonial uh, period, right? Where you just re-establish the old you know, political economy, right? And you reestablish the old sort of concentration and control of land by white uh, individuals or by expatriates or by anyone else than the indigenous population. That was hailed as a sort of development regime, right? But that was not the only development regime that was available to us. I think Adam Getachel, she uh, wrote a really good book on world making after empire. And it talks about like the potential that we had after the end of the colonial period, after, uh, after, or after, during the moment in which the empires were forced, essentially by the United States, to get rid of their colonial holdings, we there was a chance for like a small window of time to create another world proposed by the um, global South, where resources were more equitably distributed and development patterns were not to just be like export platforms for for the richer countries, or not to just be places where they could get labor from, or places where they could just launder the money through and pass it through. Actual partners in, like, you know, growth, if that's really what they believe in, and in markets, if that's what really they believe in. But, of course, we didn't pursue it. And so now we're left with, like, capital being like, oh, fuck, like, how can I get, like, a like a return better than the bonds maybe if i just like give out this ridiculous loan to these group of motherfuckers and they build something then it might work out or maybe i can sell them 
or convince a company that I'm like already invested in to sell them something that has already been made so I can get a ret- you know return one way or another. I mean, or pump up the numbers one way or another. It all just ends up being like a bunch of really shitty schemes to beat the market rate and also to just keep reproducing a very narrow conception of how to develop people, mm-hmm. right? There's this line in there, I think that's really instructive where it's like, uh, he manages to talk to Demo, right? And Demo is like the guy who helped do like a lot of the telecommunications transformation in the first. He, he was like, the uh, permanent who- secretary of the Ministry of Information, Communications and Technology for Kenya. Right. So he broke the monopoly. He created like this open standards uh, uh, portal, uh, Kenya Open Data, that allowed the. So now the government data was free and accessible. He got undersea cables, internet cables. You know, he did a lot that did revolutionize and change telecom industry, the ICT uh, industry in Kenya, and, and allowed it to become a larger part of the economy there, right? And he has a line in here where he's like, listen. You know, the ambition of Kansas City is, uh, quote, we need to teach Kenyans how to innovate. That is the idea of Kansas. To develop them, to develop the country, to develop the people, they need to be taught how to innovate. But it's, it's like the idea that Kenyans don't know how to innovate is ridiculous. It's not that Kenyans don't know how to make things. It's not that Kenyans don't know how to come up with things. It's that Kenyans are not doing them in this very specific, narrow confines of what investors and capitalists in the West want a need and desire to beat market mm-hmm. returns, right? That line was so fucking unbelievable to me. I mean, unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Th- that one, unbelievable for anybody to say that, right? Like, cons- the idea of Kanza is to teach Kenyans how to innovate, right? Because it, it it sounds like a fucking like like British colonialist wearing his fucking pith helmet, right? Talking about like civilization. Yeah. You know, we need to teach these people how yeah. to be civilized. But you know, you just can like find and replace civilization with the the latest buzzword of innovate, right? We need to teach them how to be innovative. I mean, that was unbelievable to me, but also unbelievable that it came from the mouth of Endemo, right? Who's the fucking a minister mm-hmm. of ICT um, mm-hmm. for Kenya, right? And and an academic at that, someone that uh, like ought to know better, right? Ought to know better. And Baraka yeah. points out that this, uh, uh, his cho- as, as Baraka says, his choice of language of, was overarchingly similar to McKinsey's. And Baraka points to um, a 2018 report on Asian smart cities uh, by McKinsey Global Institute, where they said, quote, the drive to make cities smarter is not just about what governments do. It's also about creating environments where different players can bring innovation to bear on public issues. What that pointed out to me, what that showed to me so clearly is that what McKinsey is doing is a form of colonialism, right? They, they are doing a kind of soft power colonialism um, through management consulting, through this like thought leadership, as they call it, right? Um, and, uh, and, and doing so in this way of uh, treating all of these different countries, these entire continents um, as the same, Right. Like McKinsey has been called out before they have fucked up. And in, in terms of like, right, they, they sell these uh-huh. vision 2030 plans all over the place. I mean, that's what you know, that's what Neom yeah. is in Saudi Arabia. Right. Like like it's, it's another one well, of these vision yeah, plans. Yeah. It's some soft bank shit as well. Right. The vision fund. Um, they sell these vision strategies all over the place and they've been caught forgetting to uh, like like find and replace 
um, one country's name for another country's name in a strategy document, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so they're like selling, you know, like the mm-hmm. Kenyan Vision 2030 plan, but somewhere in the document it actually accidentally says India or accidentally says Saudi Arabia because they just like didn't find all the right. instances <laughs> of it. Whoops. Yeah, like whoops. Um and it, it shows how lazy which, which also are. how yeah, I mean how why not control F? How fucking hard. I mean, not like you know, there's a lot of things wrong there, but it is amazing that they just didn't control F uh India in a report that was for you know it shows how lazy this colonialism is as well like they like like they truly they think that they have the universal central plan for everybody but i think they only mm-hmm. think that because they're like we can sell this to everybody we can sell this snake oil to yes. everybody that's what it really comes yes. down to they don't actually believe in any of this shit they believe in selling the snake oil and that comes through um brilliantly in this quote from that uh, Baraka interviewed this Kenyan data scientist um, named Alexis right. Tei, uh, who worked on smart cities in India for various global consulting companies. The, the data, this te- uh, data scientist Tei points out that one of the problems with these projects uh, is that the consulting firms are not actually involved with the execution of them. She says, quote, their main mm-hmm. deliverable uh, or their main deliverables are often what they call strategy and vision, which are documents. So right. they conceive of themselves as thought partners to implementers, usually right. local and national governments. Hence, I doubt that McKinsey would consider any of their projects a failure since they delivered on the visioning and strategy development. Baraka calls this the McKinseyfication of government and federal services often means that the mere production of paperwork counts as progress, right? And Baraka is dead on there, right? Mm. Like the paperwork itself is the progress. McKinsey, you know, they, they're like, no, we, we did the success. The fact that Kanza is still, uh, you know, a, an active construction site, you know, uh, 13 years after the fact, that's on you. That's on you. We gave you our thought partnership. We gave you the vision and the strategy. Why didn't you execute on it? I love that as like capitalism falls apart, the response of capitalists is to just like be a 76ers fan and trust the process. You know, like it doesn't, (laughs) it doesn't actually matter that life is getting so fucking horrible and you have yet to reap like adequate fruits of your labor and you're watching the the ecology disintegrate and you're watching like your communities get, uh, fall under more assault by you know fucking nefarious forces of capital or you're watching people that you know lose their jobs or not find jobs right or struggle with healthcare, and everyone's just like trust the process man. <laughs> trust the process we're gonna get there next year we're gonna get it back we're gonna have a d- good draft next year trust is me. there uh right the market will be good. No next coincidence year. that this sounds like some fucking DNC Democrat shit as well, right? I mean, no coincidence. What do you think? What do you think Mayor Pete was doing when he when he took his little holiday to uh, Somalia at, when he was a McKinsey consultant? Man, he, <laughs> he, he, he was there. He was providing them thought partnership about infrastructure projects. Right. That's what he was doing. Yeah. <laughs> if the conspiracy theories are not true, right? If if he was there as a McKinsey analyst, then he was in his, there as a capacity of a thought partner. But if he actually he was selling is, them some monorails, dog, he was selling them some the, monorails. Do you remember? 
do you remember the conspiracy theory? It was so fun. Well, uh, for a few months that Pete Buttigieg was like a CIA agent in, uh, in Somalia. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and that he was just, it was just there because they were like, hmm. He let like a twenty. He let like a twenty-some go by there himself. Uh, I mean, obviously, he was he wasn't a CIA agent, but it, it would be fun to think about. No, he was judging, worse. Like, he was the McKinsey consultant. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah <sorry. laughs> The McKinsey has killed more people than the CIA. I mean, right? Low that's, key, maybe that's the TMK <laughs> Low <line>. key, maybe. <laughs> Fifty bucks says that uh, Booty Judge has a Ken uh, Tillman in his closet. <laughs> no, <laughs> this is like part and parcel with this form of uh, soft colonialism, right? Like we need to read our Edward Said, right? We need to read our Orientalism. Mm-hmm. Um, this is this is what that soft power, um, soft colonialism looks like as well. Is that it's uh, the the like the hard colonialism is the shit that like England and the and the British Empire did in Africa and India, right? Where these things are territories, right? That they have this like hard authoritarian control over these countries. The soft colonialism is is a is an economic power, right? It makes these countries dependent economically on uh the imperial core and and that is what mckinsey is doing here as well with through their global institute is they are making these countries seemingly or or, or telling these countries rather that you know if they want to develop if they want progress if they want vision and strategy then they have to be economically dependent upon the thought leadership of mckinsey it is fucking uh like this is not a metaphor. It this is straight up a form of uh, corporate consulting colonialism. I mean, I think that's why it's kind of beautiful that he ends up becoming like the, the secretary of transportation, right? I mean, a beautiful, not like it's not, it's not good, <laughs> but it is like it makes sense in the you know, in some sort of uh, you know pros. Uh, I don't know prosaic style because <laughs> i don't know but it makes sense it makes it makes a it makes sense that he would become the secretary of transportation because mckenzie's thing is all about vision right and about like structuring things and saying oh we're not doing ideological political work we're just providing deliverables but i mean everything that they're suggesting is a political or ideological mm-hmm. thing right just like it would be ridiculous to say the secretary of transportation is never doing politics and that all they're doing is objective uh, statement of the facts. No, you know why is it that the uh, why is it that he may support endeavors or rhetorically support proposals or pull the trigger on executive moves for one type of development of uh, infrastructure instead of another? You know, well, it's, it comes down to politics. You know, what does what does Pete? What does Biden? What 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 do they think? The department, the DOT, should be moving ahead on, right? Or, yeah, I you mean, know, you know, we we say that support. all technology is political in the same sense. All infrastructure is ideological, right? I mean, the, quite right. literally laying the uh, the ideological infrastructure in the form of this material capital investment in infrastructure, right? Maybe it's good. Maybe Pete will do like a coup, and um, we'll have like a nationwide uh, mega mega bus route <laughs> you know you can get from uh, dc to la in a in a month for uh for four hundred dollars <laughs> you know and, but and you have to transfer 10 buses what happens when what happens when elon musk sells uh kenya a hyperloop contract it is going to blow up <laughs> either because a tesla blow, gets stuck and blows up in it 
or because they didn't properly cover something and it blows up. But it's going to blow up. <laughs> Yo, this kind of shit is like uh, designed from the beginning to attract motherfuckers like Elon Musk, though, as well. I want to I want to read another um, short paragraph here from Baraka's essay where he says, quote, the idea was that the Kenyan government would provide the basic urban infrastructure, roads, electricity, commuter railway lines, water and sewage facilities, and step aside. Private investors would then take over and build the rest. In return, they'd get generous tax exemptions and tax holidays, hitch their fortunes to a regional IT hub, and be exempted from a law stipulating that Kenya-based companies have to have local uh, locals make up at least 20% of their shareholders. As an added bonus, expatriates working in the city would not have to pay income or withholding tax. Beautiful. I mean, that's how you get people to pour money into a place. You tell them not to pay taxes. That's the, that's really smart. It's always worked. Every single time we have cut taxes, more money has been invested. It's the, it's brilliant. That's right. Every time you say com- people that work at this one company, like Amazon, don't have to pay taxes because they build some shit like a headquarters. Uh, I, as we know, mm-hmm. that is, uh, <laughs> that, that is, that is that one weird trick to uh to growth and <laughs> development and progress that socialists hate socialists hate this one weird trick right. <laughs> for capitalist <laughs> development because it works because it works can you name me a single time we're offering a private corporation a series of tax breaks um and its employees a series of tax breaks and subsidies ever backfired i don't think so as someone who has read a lot of science fiction and comic books most villains are corporation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Isn't fucking Modoc like goddamn like Modoc is like one of the new villains that they're trying to push. Is he just like a dude who's like I I hate no, corporations. No, so, Let me do another corporation. Modoc was not funny. Modoc was absolutely humorless. He was just a means to an end to kill. Mm. And the new animated series kind of makes it into a robot chicken bit that lasts 10 episodes. <laughs> <laughs> oh no well either way i do agree with you i think like a lot i mean there look it, i think it's funny that like in a lot of fiction corporations are villain and then in real life everyone's like what if we uh, what do we what what are you gonna do if you could they can't increase their wages you can't increase their taxes you can't make them incorporate in this specific area. What do you? You can't do that. That's not fair. You can't make them provide healthcare for their employees. But um, in 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 fiction, we all have like a pretty clear understanding of the corporation as a private tyranny, right? An absolutist hierarchy, a hierarchical structure that just dominates and exploits every single person and being inside of it because it's a top-down system. There's a point here that I really want to hone in on as well that we've been kind of beating around, but I want to, I want to, you know, really be explicit about this is that, you know, on top of a lot of this, um, you know, the, the technological determinism that is involved in all these, the, these visions and politics around smart urbanism, right? Uh, 
there's also, especially in countries like Africa, uh, like in India, right, where these things are being, where these things are being sold, these narratives are being sold, these imaginaries are being sold. In addition to that technological determinism, there is also a developmental determinism that is very much a uh, essential part of this, right? It's this idea that there's only one way to develop, right? And for a country like Kenya uh, to, you know, stoke that engine of economic growth, to become part of the global financial and technological elite, to raise the welfare of the, of the population, they have to look like the U.S., right? They have to do everything in their power to look like uh, and mimic the United States, right? They have to plan their cities like the U.S. They have to attract capital like the U.S. And particularly, they have to attract U.S. capital. Uh, they have to pay these massive consulting fees to McKinsey, you know, the same com the same consultants that also advise uh, American governments and, and cities, right? Like, it it's this idea that uh, a country like Kenya doesn't know how to innovate or is fallen behind because they are not the U.S., right? And they need to, they need to do what they can to become the U.S., right? It, it's, uh, you know, you mentioned one of the, one of these planned cities, you know, in the beginning of the episode, I forget, I forget in which country, but they were talking about how they were going to build like a Manhattan in East Africa. Th this is a form of developmental determinism, which is in itself colonialist, because it's colonialist as well in this soft colonial sense of, um, the. I mean, on one hand, these places can never be the U.S., not because there is something inherent in them that makes them unable to achieve uh, a society like the U.S., but because the U.S. will never let them be the U.S., right? That's the whole fucking point of having a, an imperial core and an imperial periphery, right? A core that extracts and exploits from the peripheral is that these places will never al be allowed to thrive and develop in any way that makes them not under the thumb of of the U.S. or un or or of Europe or of whatever other global mm -hmm. hegemon. Right? Uh, it's this view that you know the these. These consultants like McKinsey, right, like they develop these ideas through their work in the U.S., through their tight connections with other uh, corporate multinationals that they consult with. And it's, it's the only idea in their head of what it means to develop, of what it means to thrive, to grow, whatever. But, you know, surprise, surprise, either one, they have no conception of geopolitical economy or two what i think is more likely is they just don't give a fuck right i mean as we've seen right like like their whole the 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 selling of these visions and strategies selling of these aspirations and these imaginaries that's the whole market they're in not actually executing them not actually making them real it's the mere production of paperwork uh, as progress, as, as Baraka puts it so, so brilliantly, right? You know, I, I think we really do have to understand this, um, in that lens of, you know, we have to, we have to dust, dust off our Rosa Luxemburg. We have to dust off our linen. We have to understand this in terms of imperialism. Right. We have to understand that capitalism is also an imperialist project. And that's what we're seeing here in these uh, failed promises of, of smart cities in 
Kenya and Ethiopia and Senegal and, you know, all of these countries. Um, it's not just that it's a failed promise of some smart city that hasn't been actualized yet. This is the reality of technological imperialism. And I think also going back to that, the Republic, these, the Nigerian publication I talked about, there are also two things that become apparent here. One is that there's becoming like this, you know, that also McKinsey's taking advantage of this sort of growing desire to pursue authoritarian forms of governance, right? Um, that, you know, we named some of these examples in Egypt and Senegal and, you know, in Kenya, of course, and in South Africa, but that these are also like when they, when, when vision plans are presented, they're presenting Singapore, Dubai, and New York, right? They're presenting skyscrapers and, and steel blue skylines and luxury spaces and green spaces you know, as uh, as the writer points out, you know, they are buzzwords that appeal to property developers, Western donors, and government officials, right? But as they go on to say, the popularity of these sorts of projects is not just a curious coincidence. Their language, the examples they refer to, and the process of their development all show an obvious envy for an authoritarian model of development. First, they show a desire to fix the city without complaint, negotiation, or restraint. Rather than consulting residents on their needs and wants, they adopt a top-down SimCity approach to urban development. A dream of an expert-designed model city on a hill has strong roots in African colonial history. As part of their civilizing mission, colonizers sought to impose the function and aesthetics of the metropole on their colonial capitals. Unsurprisingly, indigenous voices were not consulted in this process of recreation, just as residents of Lagos or Cairo are not consulted today. These new cities present visions of a city without people, gleaming towers, clean streets, picturesque green spaces, all seen from a bird's eye view. When promotional images even deign to depict residents, it is only as computer-generated masses seen from a distance flitting through glitzy retail environments. The scenes are so generic, it is difficult to find any clues from race, attire, or aesthetic that suggest the country in which the project is being built, right? This touches in that, you know, the, the fakeness of a customized approach, but in reality, just offering a salve that fits one size fits all because they're trying to sell and also fitting in the lack of an imaginary, right? Because they're just trying to pitch something that is a deliverable. And so it's mission success, no matter what, it doesn't actually matter whether it's related to what the people need, right? And they, and they go on to seeing this first thread of, of what becomes clear in these projects. The other way in which the megacities fit in authoritarian fantasy is in their exclusive nature, right? The vacancy rates of Lagos's wealthy neighborhoods clearly show there is no demand for $1 million apartments. Egypt is demolishing slums situated on the site of New Cairo, paying inhabitants a fraction of their land value and then building expensive residences in their place. By pricing these units so far out of the reach of residents, governments are ensuring the type of people who can live there are returned diaspora, foreign expatriates, and elites with strong ties to business or government. They're designed to be enclaves, echoing the segregated government reserve areas the British were so fond of, while the dependence on poor labor from surrounding areas recreates the city-township dynamics of apartheid South Africa. That in of itself is, I think, a pretty damning and sobering look at what McKinsey and what these new day, these neo-colonial, you know, projects are really doing. Right? It's not. It's not that they're innocently presenting 
these plans, though, as we've talked about, they are presenting the plans and thinking. And some of them really do think that's it. That's the extent of my thing, right? And it's not also that these are genuinely, genuine uh, new beliefs of capitalists about how to fix the city, right? The fact of the matter is that they're callbacks. They're callbacks to the colonial projects. They're callbacks to the colonial era. They're callbacks to the exploitative ways that which you know apartheid systems were set up. They're, they're callbacks to the ways in which uh, you know indigenous people were pushed out of land that they held, that they owned, and they lived in, right? And and they're crushed and they're pushed out and they're given no way, nowhere else to live and nowhere else to go, right? I mean, there's even an example in the article of you know I think. What happened in India, right? And with the uh, with the proliferation of these vision projects, we all, you know, uh, or may be familiar in one way or another with, you know, the wave of suicides among farmers in in India, right? And part of that was motivated by the fact that you know companies like Monsanto make it almost impossible for a farmer to uh, reuse uh, seeds, right, from after a harvest, and so they have to keep buying and buying and buying, or they'll have to do really destructive or self-destructive and unsustainable loans to get equipment, right? To fix equipment or to get new, uh, to get new crops or to get new seed for new crops in each year, right? And they're not able to do that. And it ends up becoming a sharecropping system that they're eventually unable to sustain and they kill themselves because they have no other option, right? But there's also another aspect that I think the article really kind of surprisingly unveils, which is the, the vision projects by McKinsey, right? And that, you know, Modi's ascension, to the premiership in 2014 results in an explosion of smart city collaborations, right? And he tries to build a hundred smart cities in five years. He partners with our f- favorite mayor and his uh, philanthropy fund, Bloomberg Philanthropies. And that helps <laughs> India look at, okay, this city or that city can be smarter. The project fails. It's massively delayed, but that doesn't stop the companies from selling technology to the cities, which suggests, you know, that the technology was already made, right? And so in, Hyder- in Hyderabad, right, the Vision 2020 uh, ended up going horribly, right? Because they, the company comes in, McKinsey comes in and it says local investors, they don't have motivation, right? Speaking in that sort of colonial language, similar to Kenya saying that like Kenyans don't know how to innovate. And so they lack motivation. And so you need to hand it over to large corporations. And so to hand it over to large corporations, you have to make it worth for them to invest. And to make it worth for them to invest, you need to loosen the laws around commercial activities. So, right, because these laws are, are quote, bot, they bottlenecked businesses and prevented interest firms from investing in Andhra Pradesh, right? And so the, what happens when they loosen the laws? Millions of farmers are displaced, right? Millions of farmers are displaced from the land, and then it's given to large corporations. Those displaced farmers move to Hyderabad. Right, which results in a massive increase in the number of slums, massive increase in the number of suicides, right? Massive increase in the general inequality and precarity of these farmers, and in, and in the plan is described by some as quote a blueprint for mass starvation, right? But you know what happens when you present all this to McKinsey? They told uh, Baraka, quote, we do not advocate for or recommend specific courses of action or take decisions. Where we serve public sector clients, we do not determine public policy or regulation. But as we've been just laid out for this entire episode, that is not what actually happens. It's just a rhetorical cudgel that they use to avoid scrutiny. Because at the end of the day, they are using soft power to advocate very specific paths of development that end up killing hordes of people consistently. Right? Yeah, their hands are dripping in blood. And when you try to point it out to them, they say, mm-mm. My hands are clean, That's baby. Ketchup. That's not, well, it's not blood. 
That's ketchup. That's ketchup. Yeah, but I see the There's red body right there. Your hands. Nah, they were like that already. They were like that already. <laughs> that that's 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 how I normally. I mean, it is. It is. I'm it not, is. I'm not, I'm McKenzie, my hands aren't bloody. Right. Let's give them their credit. <laughs> I do graffiti. Jeremy says. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think a big point here uh, to take away from this is that the you know these experimental mega cities of the future, right? Smart from scratch, built on green filled land, you know, where supposedly nothing ever existed before. Either it's actually reclaimed land, or actually like farmers and and you know those people existed there before, like what's happening in with Neom in Saudi Arabia, right? Which is like displacing the. Uh, the traditional lands of like nomadic tribes and peoples in, in that in that region in Saudi Arabia. But the official line by the governments, by the corporations, by the consultancies is nobody exists here. Why? Because we right. don't count these people as right. people. They aren't human. Nobody exists here, right? We are building something where nothing ever existed before. Mm-hmm. That's bullshit, right? We know that these like experimental mega cities of the future are, for the most part, they're just distractions um, from how you know how cities are actually developed. What smart cities, you know, actually existing smart cities really look like, and how they're materialized. They don't look like these mega cities, right? That's not how they actually look like. And in the cases of um, you know where things are actually built, things like uh, Songdo, you know, New Songdo City in South Korea, as we've talked about, like Mazdar, right? Like these these places are these ex- ultra expensive. Uh, ghost towns you know nobody nobody actually lives there um you know as you mentioned before like the marketing brochures for these places almost never have people in them right like they or if they do have people it's the only people they count as people which is like you know rich expats who are there doing some luxury shopping i want to end um you know this episode just thinking back like uh, I, I've seen this firsthand and it's fucking eerie. I spent some time uh, like 10 years ago in Doha in Qatar and that city was fucking wild. I was in the middle of Doha. I was staying in a hotel there. was there for a couple of weeks uh, and I went out and, you know, just like kind of ventured around, around the city, uh, just get a lay of the land. I was in this like huge indoor mall. I mean, everything is indoor there, right? Because it's fucking desert and it's hot as shit. Um, I was in this huge, like, you know, like fucking like 10 story indoor mall, you know, air conditioned blasting, you know, shops all over the place. Nobody was in there. Nobody felt like some post apocalyptic shit, like, you know, some like, some 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 Zack Snyder uh Dawn of the Day, you know, like I'm yeah. pulled up in this mall and there's like a zombie apocalypse going on. This it was just abandoned. It was dead because nobody actually lives mm-hmm. in the city, right? Nobody actually lives there. Uh, because no one can afford to. Um or if you do, then you live in your like compound. Or if you are an expat um, there, or if you're there uh, visiting on, on, you know, for business or whatever, like I was, uh, then you just stay in your really fancy, yeah. expensive hotel, uh, which is full of, 
you know, the hotel I was staying in was full of British people, right? And like there was like a, a breakfast, you know, a breakfast buffet every morning and it was a full English breakfast, right? Mm-hmm. It was just like, yeah. you might as well be in London, right? Like, like there's nothing about it that tells you you are in a Middle Eastern country. There's nothing about it that tells you about the realities of how people that actually live there, people that are forced to work there actually live right it's as jeremy just put it it's 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 a it's a void right it's 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 this void space you're in this zone of nothingness and that's what these cities actually look like and feel like when they're actually built right they're not built for uh for for the people they're built for this like transnational class of 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 businessmen and consultants and uh heads of state and politicians right who like you know they come in and they come out it is beautiful you know how instead of fixing cities instead of making cities places that you want to live in instead of no longer neglecting them we will spend not we not me or you, but groups of people spend tens of billions of dollars building other cities so that they don't have to see the cities that have been fucked up by the consequences of their actions over the past 20, 30, 40, 100, 200 years. You know, it is um, I think it speaks to also the you should, you should have immense amounts of skepticism any fucking time someone comes to you with the idea or talks about the idea of a smart city or a new city. Right. Because. If they're not talking about fixing the city, if they're not talking about making a new type, redoing the cities that are present, they're talking about making some fucking uh, Singapore or Dubai clone or New York City clone even, then they are uh, selling you snake oil and hucking you bullshit, right? They're trying to foist you. They're trying to fucking foist some shit on Blue, you. Foist and blueprint <laughs> yeah. the mass starvation yeah. on you, you know? And it's, and it's not just these cities like Doha. It's not just these greenfield zones like Kanza or, or uh, Songdo or Mazdar. They are, in a way, mimicking parts of London and New York City, but they're mimicking the worst parts. I'm thinking of, um, there is this essay, uh, uh, an academic journal article I read a while back ago called Necrotecture, Lifeless Dwellings and London's Super Rich. And this uh, article looked at the way in which uh, London's uh, skyline is largely underused or lies entirely empty because what it is, is this is, uh, as as the, um, the geographer wrote this, Roland Atkinson called it, um, Quote, a new landscape of super prime residential development is a kind of dead residential space mm-hmm. or necrotexture. Uh, you know, he's, he talks about how these are like these, these lifeless spaces um, built for the super rich, um, but they don't live there. Right, they don't live in these town, in these like in these uh these these suites, uh these penthouses in these skys in these skyscrapers. Right, what these are is um they're just a they're just a form of of capital fix of spatial fix as right. David Harvey calls it. It's an overconsumption of housing by the super rich, as Atkinson calls it. Right, they buy these. Uh, these new towers. They buy these spectacular homes. Um, they, you know, they put a bunch of capital investment in them, but they don't actually live there. Or if they do, maybe it's like one weekend right. a year or something, you know, like when they're in town for business. But otherwise, they just lie dormant and empty as these forms of passive capital investment. And that is exactly what McKinsey is telling uh, countries like Kenya. They need to build entire cities modeled after that uh after that 
right after after this kind okay, of well. necro texture it is a a perfect example of all exchange value yeah. and no use value right building a city that is based entirely on uh it being a form of investment um rather than a, a, mm-hmm. a place for life yeah. you know i think that they're making capital for making cities for you know for capital capitals for capital they're making new capitals yeah. for new capital. That's how it's always going to be. That's how it's, not yeah. how it always is going to be, but how it is uh, among the unwashed, uh, tiny cadre of fucking capitalists that insist on remaking the world as a sort of safe space for capital reproduction as you know, prop rates of returns on their investments fall and fall and fall and fall and fall. What a beautiful world brought to you by right. McKinsey Global Institute. <laughs> And and we're giving you this for free. We're not even going to charge you a six or seven figure consulting fee for this. This, this is just some. This is some yeah. thought partnership that in we're fact, providing McKinsey, as goodwill. Uh, told us that we should make this a free episode. In fact, we'll we'll have a little. Yeah, you know, and, you can't see it, but there's a Chiron on the video screen with me, uh, Jathan, and Jeremy. That's a sponsored by McKinsey Global Institute TM, and then the TM is trademark pending because there's uh, some legal proceedings. That you know, you know, I'm not going to bore you with the details, but rest assured that the McKinsey partnership is coming, <laughs> and as is our Am- our joining of the Amazon family. Right, we're going to be joining them. That's pending a little bit under wraps. We'll see how it goes after after the lawsuit. We're going to give like <laughs> half of our listenership just fucking rage heart attacks, or people are going to be throwing phones. I'm giving. Their- I'm saying that because if it's if it's coming from me, they should like they should know from all of us that it's not happening. But also, like, I think I've, I've, I've only ranted a little bit about how evil that sort of thing would be. So, yeah, there's a, there's a little meta for our faithful <laughs> listeners. Um, no, but really, uh, we're joining the Amazon family, <laughs> the McKinsey group. Um, stay tuned for developments on those fronts. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that if once Spotify starts uh, hoistering ads on everybody's content, we're going to just have nothing but Amazon and McKinsey. And- yeah, our ads are going to be for Kwanzaa, actually. <laughs> that's right that's come right. away to the future of africa i mean that's what every ad is gonna be all right guys <laughs> this is a joke new, new capitals for new capital i think we'll put a bow on this episode um yeah I, I, again this essay is just really fucking good because it points out a big part of how these these like smart mega city projects actually happen, which is that they don't happen, right? They mm-hmm. don't happen. We spend, a, you know, we, we need to spend just as much time talking about the bullshit of implications uh, if this shit happened, um, but, but also at the same time, just like completely de- debunking the idea that like this shit was never actually meant to happen in the first place, right? So with that, yeah. I do want to thank our listeners for doing what you do, which is listening. Uh, <laughs> you can find us. Well, th- you know, this is some free content um, brought to you by McKinsey. You can find the premium content, that that real, real shit, um, on our Patreon at uh, patreon.com slash thismachinekills, where we hit you with some premium episodes every single week. We got a great one lined up for you this week um, as we dive into appropriately, the technocracy chapter of Langdon Winner's Autonomous Technology. And so 
with that, we will see y'all in the premium feed later. Later. <laughs>